0: Thank you to Faith and Law for the invitation uh, to come and speak with you today, and thank you all for your time in giving me some of your, uh, your time and your attention, uh, and I hope you enjoy the, uh, the opportunity for us to talk today. I look forward to our discussion. Uh, this talk, um, I, uh, I had quite a lot of fun writing this talk. If you're interested, I hope to publish an expanded version of this. I wrote a, quite a long article, and I had to chop down quite a bit of it uh, before I, settling on the spoken version, so uh, keep an eye out. Perhaps you'll see a link uh, out there about the published version, which goes in a bit more detail on university culture and identity studies and so forth. I've, uh, I've somewhat jokingly entitled this talk, The Jedi Are Selfless. The Jedi Are Selfless, Nationalism, Identity, the Humanities, and Liberalism. And you'll see why, where that uh, title comes from as we get through the talk. Um, let me begin by telling you a story. There was once a young man who had a comfortable, loving home, But one day his home was attacked, and everything he held dear was threatened. He was forced to go on a perilous journey into the dangerous unknown, unsure of himself, and doubting who he was in this new world. And so as he ventured forth, he also ventured within. He delved inside himself to learn who he was and what he was called to be. As he did so, he discovered something remarkable. He found out who he was and discovered a new power. Just in time, with his newfound power, he faced down the dangers of this world, made safe his home, returned older, wiser, and more powerful to order his world. Okay, so with minor variations, I've just told you the plot of every superhero movie ever made. It is the myth of our time. I don't plan on giving any spoilers, by the way. I haven't seen Endgame. Uh, Our civilization is fixated on stories about the journey to discover our identity, uh, how, how the discovery of our identity is the key to unleashing our inner power and mastering our world. The two quests overlap the uh, to discover ourselves and save the world. The identity quest is the new hero's journey. The emphasis on identity is what distinguishes the modern version of this fairy tale from its pre-modern predecessors. Odysseus, Aeneas, and, uh, Beowulf, and Roland, they didn't spend time worrying about their identities. They worried more about fulfilling their duties. But in our age, identity is our duty and our destiny. So I want to talk to you about this myth. I want to share a little bit about where I think it comes from, uh, and um, historically and spiritually. Um, I want to tease out its political implications and show how it gives rise to both identity politics and the current wave of nationalism sweeping much of the world. Uh, The thesis of this first half of my talk is that while the demand for identity recognition is understandable, it also raises serious social, political, and cultural problems without any corresponding solutions. We are awash today with the problems of identity. And so in the second half of my talk, I want to propose a few answers, I want to gesture at a few answers to the questions of identity. I look at the political problem, I call for a renewal of classical liberalism, don't be afraid of that word, classical 18th century liberalism, uh, federalism and the devolution of power as the answer to identity politics and nationalism. Uh, I also want to conclude then on uh, some, uh, a note on the spiritual roots of this problem and suggest where our need for identity and recognition come from and what the ultimate spiritual answer might be. So to begin with, where does this quest for identity come from? Why do we feel so driven to discover and express who we are? Why are we so convinced that our true self is a source of power? Well, I'm going to lean quite heavily on Francis Fukuyama's new book, Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, which I think is, uh, in some sense, the book of the age. Uh, If you get nothing else out of my talk, Go read that book. Uh, it is a fantastic book, and I think it sheds quite a lot of light on the things we're talking about today. Fukuyama traces our identity quest to three things. First is simply a perennial, eternal and universal spiritual yearning for others to know us. For others to know and affirm us. It's not enough that I have my own sense of uh, worth if other people do not publicly acknowledge it, or if they denigrate me and don't acknowledge my existence. And that's as true of human beings, and it always has been. But if that's a perennial feature, what has changed recently to create the phenomenon of identity politics and nationalism as we see it? Fukuyama identifies two things. One is the Protestant Reformation, which helped create the notion or turn our attention to the the reality of the inner self compared to the outer self. Luther grappled a lot with his inner demons, with sin inside of his heart, uh, and he uh, opposed that inner self uh, to his outer self. argued that the inner self was his true being. That that's where his real identity was. That doesn't quite get us to identity politics today. You have to take the next step, which is the Romantic movement of the 18th and 19th centuries. The Romantic movement took Luther's distinction and said simply that the inner self was the right one, the good one, the locus of our true, authentic self, and we didn't need to repent of anything in the inner self. We actually needed to set it free that uh, the outer self was a shell forced on us by the artifices of society. Where Luther fought to um, fought his inner being, Rousseau set it, tried to set it free. As Fukuyama says, the modern concept of identity places a supreme value on authenticity, on the validation of that inner being that is not being allowed to express itself. Friedrich Nietzsche similarly spoke powerfully about our need, in an era in which, as he said, God is dead to fashion ourselves, our identities like a work of art. It's a classic romantic notion. To create something new and beautiful for the world to esteem and to recognize. This then is the myth of identity and this is where it comes from. We deserve recognition and dignity. We have an inner self. The inner self is naturally good it is the source of our authentic being it is suppressed by society and thus we have to fight to unearth and express our true identities and receive recognition uh, of our identities from the world at large these psychological dynamics have clear political implications so let me move now to talk about the political implications of these psychological and spiritual yearnings When we delve inward to uh, discover who we are, we usually find things that we hold in common with other people. Our gender, our race, our religion, our ethnicity, language, culture, nationality. And so when we seek to express such things, we find ourselves in solidarity with other people expressing similar identities. Very few of us are truly wholly unique. Uh, The irony here is strong. No movements are more homogenous and more conformist than movements to express who we authentically are. Secondly, our drive for recognition is not limited to relationships among our family or our tribe. We uh, take it into the public square. Again, as Fukuyama says, because human beings naturally crave recognition, the modern sense of identity evolves quickly into identity politics, in which individuals demand public recognition of their worth, public recognition of their worth. And so we we express identity, we look for recognition and validation in the public square. In this day, in our country, in our culture and context, 21st century America, this takes many forms. When minority groups do it, we call it identity politics. When majority groups do it, we call it nationalism. Nationalism is the identity politics of the majority tribe. Identity politics is the nationalism of small groups. In each case, groups of people defined by a shared identity trait look to the public square for validation and affirmation. Understood this way, nationalism and identity politics feed off of one another. As identities splinter and minority groups demand recognition, majorities may feel threatened that their polity, the one they feel ownership over, is disintegrating. And in response, that makes majorities more keen to reaffirm their larger or shared sense of identity as an antidote to the perceived fragmentation around them. As Fukuyama says, this crisis of identity leads to the search for a common identity that will rebind the individual to a social group and reestablish a clear moral horizon. This psychological fact lays the groundwork for nationalism. Nationalism, in his words, is based on an intense nostalgia for an imagined past of strong community, and I would say a unified identity in which the divisions and confusions of a pluralist modern society did not exist. But the more uh, the more the large group advances nationalism based on its identity, the more small groups will feel left out and feel the need to double down on their demand for recognition for their group. In this way, the more each group advances their identity claims, the more the other feels threatened and responds in kind. And so these rival identity claims take the form of of an arms race, so to speak, or a spiraling conflict in which there's no way out. The only rational thing is to keep on doubling down on your quest to have your identity recognized by the public square, so long as the other side's doing the same thing. We call this clash of identities the culture war. The culture war. The culture war in the United States stems from Americans felt need to seek validation and affirmation of their identities, their, their, their cultural group from the public square. Culture war is only possible when Americans look to the government to establish a certain cultural template for the nation, but disagree about what that template should look like. Another way of putting it is this, that culture war is the natural consequence of nationalism and of identity politics because people will inevitably fight over the definition of the nation or the uh, membership criteria of their group uh, that they're seeking validation for. Uh, Everyone will want to have their own identity recognized for fear of being left out. That, then, is the conundrum, the dilemma that we're in, the political and cultural crisis uh, that we are in, in part thanks to the myth of identity that we ceaselessly pursue. What do we do about this? What solutions might there be? Well, let me kind of work my way back out in reverse order, having addressed first the kind of spiritual causes and then the political effects. Let me talk about possible political solutions and conclude with perhaps some spiritual solutions. What about our political crisis? If the problem afflicting our public square is that identity groups are competing with one another for recognition and validation, the solution is stated quite easily. The state should recognize all citizens equally, regardless of their identity, and extend special recognition to none. Another way of putting this is that we need to recover the ideals of the classical liberal state, neutral between competing cultures, ideas, groups, religions, and conceptions of the good life. The idea that the state has the responsibility to recognize, affirm, and validate your identity is actually a very novel political theory, one that would sound frankly bizarre to pre-modern political theorists. Since Augustine, let me leave Aristotle out of this, since Augustine, political philosophers in the West have uh, uh, had comparably humbler aspirations for the state. They expected the state to maintain order, execute justice, and maybe safeguard liberty. That's somewhat more recently. And that's about it. Now that doesn't mean the quest for identity never entered the public sphere before. Rather, older philosophers had a different answer for it. Hegel classically framed democracy in precisely these terms that liberal democracy is the system best suited to meet our identity demands because it is the system in which all citizens receive equal recognition. There was no disparities of recognition between master and slave. He thought this was the culmination of histories, what his argument was, is that uh, we will achieve a a stable equilibrium among competing factions by extending equal recognition to all. By treating citizens equally, the state removed the grievances that so often motivated the underclass, the powerless, the disadvantaged from revolting against the system. Now that's the idea of it. There's nothing new there. I hope it's very familiar to you. There's a long story about how democracy devolved into this never-ending fight between warring tribes and identity tribes. It's a complicated story. Uh, Part of what happened is that democracies professed liberal neutrality, and never put it into practice. They in practice governed exclusively in the interest of the majority tribe, of white men. Like the humanities, and there's a long uh, digression I could give here about what's happened in the modern university to parallel this, uh, just like humanities claimed to mine the deep well of universal humanity and studying the great texts, but actually studied the great texts of white men, the same is true politically for centuries that the United States and Europe, claimed to govern in the interests of all people and actually govern in the interests of white men for much of American history. And so minority groups very understandably, justifiably demanded that America live up to its creed and give them equal treatment. But in the process of rectifying historical wrongs, I fear that we have introduced new pathologies into our body politic. As we discussed earlier, identity politics can have a corrosive or... Um, centrifugal force on the culture of democracy. Identity politics undermines democracy by fragmenting the electorate, by eroding a sense of shared citizenship, by pitting groups against one another in a competition for prestige rather than a pursuit of equal justice for all. Now, lest you think that I'm just another conservative white man bashing progressive minority groups, let me be clear. While I do disagree with the identity politics of the left, I am today far more alarmed, far more alarmed by the identity politics of the right, by which I mean nationalism. Now you may be confused or wondering what could possibly be wrong with nationalism if you think nationalism is love of country. I love our country, I'm a patriot, Uh, I'm a veteran. I served in the United States Army, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, I believe firmly in the exceptional nature of the American experiment. That's not nationalism. Nationalism, in George Orwell's famous phrase, is the pursuit of competitive prestige for your group. Nationalism is group chauvinism. It is a demand for recognition for your group, however defined. Whether your group is white people, Christians, uh, take your pick for what label you want, nationalism is that sort of chauvinism for your particular, your preferred group. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me say, that American nationalism is always necessarily white nationalism or white supremacy. It's not quite what I'm saying. Because typically, in American history, it is more often taken the form of Protestant nationalism. Go read how people described America's greatness, and it was usually the greatness of a a Christian nation, by which they actually meant Protestant, by the way. Uh, 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 And today, we hear that same thing in echoes whenever we hear folks advocate that the United States should be understood as a Christian nation. Again, I understand there's a historical argument about the role Christianity played in American history. Get it. But if you say that America should be a Christian nation in the sense that you have to be Christian to be a full American, that non-Christians are somehow second-class citizens, that is Christian nationalism, and it is profoundly un-American because it misunderstands the fundamental tenets of the American creed. Regardless of the particular content of nationalism, whether it's Christian nationalism, white nationalism, uh, I think you need to recognize that American nationalism does have a long and troubling history of attracting, shall we say, fellow travelers who most certainly are and have been belligerent, xenophobic, sectarian racists. And if you can't recognize that, please go read more American history. Most of you all here are white. I encourage you to talk to your closest non-white friends and ask them what they think about American history. And if you don't have one, when we all look out for our own tribe, no one is left to think about the common good. Entering the public square to advocate only for our own tribe, our own group, is in a sense an abandonment of any effort to persuade the other side. It accepts politics as a simple clash for power and spoils, rather than a common pursuit of justice, pitting tribe against tribe to see who can win more from the public coffer. Now, even apart from the danger of fragmentation, there is another problem with identity politics and nationalism. Instead of pursuing equal justice for all, we now have institutionalized the idea that politics is about, is fundamentally about identity validation. And we all enter the public square with no other goal in mind than to express ourselves and win recognition for it. Uh, As Alan Noble has written in another great book called A Disruptive Witness, he says, our focus shifts away from practicing our beliefs to signaling our beliefs about ourselves and others. Politics becomes an endless quest of signaling who we are. That's not actually very important. There's a whole lot of good public policy that has to get done that has nothing to do with who you are. and we're, we're sucking up all the oxygen in the room with our endless quest for identity validation. So I think the political solution is partly for us to t- stop treating the state as if it was responsible for policing or validating identities, whether it's a minority identity or a majority identity. Part of the solution, if I can go off script for a second, part of the solution is to revive an older sense of patriotism. I want to I distinguish patriotism from nationalism. If nationalism is the pursuit of competitive prestige, patriotism is a cultivation of a healthy love and affection for our country. And that's a good thing. And I would uh, love for us to recenter American identity on the ideals of the American experiment and to foster a love and affection for those ideas. Uh, and that could be part of the solution here politically. Um, right now, the government... Uh, implements this sort of identity policing most often in how it frames and, and applies anti-discrimination laws and affirmative action programs. These are two areas where I see this identity validation, really the rubber meets the road. This is where it kind of turns into public policy. To be very clear, I'm in favor of both anti-discrimination laws and certain forms of affirmative action. But here's how I would change it. I would be much more comfortable with affirmative action programs geared towards a person's level of income, right? Let's help the poor of every race and ethnicity and background. uh, That is an actual objective, measurable material capability, not affirmative action geared towards identity categories, towards demography. That means we help the poor of all racial and ethnic backgrounds, including poor white people. You don't have to be a nationalist to recognize that we need to help poor white people. That's a good thing. When, in the name of affirmative action, the state treats people differently according to their different race or ethnicity, that is precisely the opposite of of what the liberal neutral state is supposed to do. And it directly contributes to the social balkanization and fragmentation we've been talking about. Uh, President Obama often said that his daughters, who were children of the uh, wealthy, educated, powerful people, um, should never receive preferential treatment or affirmative action. And I agree, I'm just sort of echoing what Obama said about affirmative action. I think that's entirely correct. Now finally, in this area of political solutions, I think we need to recognize that we will inevitably find some forms of each other's identities to be disagreeable and even offensive, and that's okay. We need to be comfortable living in a pluralistic country where we we coexist with people who offend us. And we should not try to use the law as a coercive instrument to force others into our mold. The state should largely stay out of these kinds of disputes. It should emphatically not start making calls about whose identities are valid and whose are uh, invalid. We really need to get away from the idea that we have a civil right to have our identities validated and affirmed by every other citizen in every other circumstance. We see this in the ongoing dispute over wedding cakes for gay and lesbian couples. Uh, Masterpiece cake shop owner Jake Phillips, who is a Christian, Um, declined to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple's wedding. It's important to note in this context that Phillips did not refuse all commerce with all gays and lesbians as a category, which would obviously, I think, be a form of bigotry. You're on the Hill. There's a purported, a a mooted um, Equality Act. To the extent the Equality Act speaks to that particular dilemma, I think it's okay. I, I, I don't trust the courts to interpret it rightly, but uh, to the extent that it says you can't discriminate people uh, against people on the basis of identity categories, that's fine. I don't think we need to oppose that uh, just because we understand the a subtext of it. Uh, Phillips did not want to use his artistic expression to celebrate one particular event that he found against his beliefs. Now, turn the example around. Imagine the cake shop owner was gay and the customer was a fundamentalist Christian who wanted a cake that proclaimed the evils of gay sex or the evils of gay marriage. For example, a cake decorated with the hateful slogan of the Westboro Baptist Church. Go Google it. Uh, Should the state force the uh, baker, the gay baker, to bake that cake? Try another example. If the owner was Jewish and the customer was a white nationalist and they wanted a cake celebrating the Holocaust, displaying a big fat swastika in frosting, should the owner be forced to bake that cake? I think the answer is no, and obviously so. I think it's obviously an easy answer. No, the state should not force people to give commerce to specific events or expressions that, uh, that cont- contravene their beliefs. Uh, I think Phillips actually has the right approach here, Jake Phillips. And I hope the Supreme Court sees it that way. He, again, did not refuse all commerce with a whole category of people, which, if we allow that, quite literally takes us back to the days of Jim Crow. Rather, Philip's shop was open to all, regardless of identity, but he, does not have, but he does have the freedom to withhold service from a specific action or event, not category of people. Again, we need to reject the idea that all citizens have a fundamental civil right to have their identities validated in public by, at all times by all people. Uh, that principle, if established in law, would drive out of the public square anyone whose identity does not allow them to extend such recognition to all people. More concisely, you're trashing the First Amendment, so let's not do that. This, I think, demands more maturity of citizens. It means we'll have to grow comfortable not being validated and recognized at all times. And by the way, I promise you, minorities are used to that. Uh, the adjustment is largely by white people who are accustomed to living in a culture and a world where our identities are constantly validated by how we understand American identity and American history. It means we have to grow up. It means we, uh, our society will have more diversity. Uh, we will have more freedom to believe things and express things that truly reflect the cultural, religious, ideological diversity of this great nation. Chances are, in that conditions of plurality, you'll be offended a lot, and that's okay, and the state should do nothing to protect you from being offended by other people's identities. I think that's the political solution here. What about the spiritual solution? If this quest for identity comes from some deep-seated spiritual, psychological drives, you know, how realistic is this political solution? What can we do personally, individually, to do our part, to build the solution? Well, we're getting into fundamental issues of the human person, the human nature, and I can only answer from within my own belief system. I'm a Christian, and so I have a particular answer to this question. I understand not everyone here will agree with this, but the issue gets, again, to fundamental questions of human nature and the meaning of life. The idea that you have an interior space known only to you, that it is a source of your identity, that you are morally compelled to delve within yourself and find out who you are, and that this interior identity is a source of power to confront the world's challenges, I think has some real problems with it. St. Augustine, one of the greatest thinkers in the Christian tradition, or possibly any tradition, argued that we are most fundamentally defined by what or whom we love. We are creatures of love. If you want to know who I am, ask me what I love, what I worship. In Augustine's framework, we are defined less by what we feel, less by what we think about ourselves, and more by what we love and whom we serve, whom we serve, whom we worship. By Augustine's definition, then, the modern self is defined, ironically, by its love for itself that's who we that's who we've become we've been defined by a worship of ourselves we love ourselves we serve ourselves in our endless quest for identity expression and validation the myth of identity is spiritual onanism go look up that word alan noble writes in his book a disruptive witness another book that i just recommend you read there is no static ideal self hidden within that we are morally obligated to discover and express and give our lives meaning and justification. And he goes on to de- detail the risks and the dangers of, do- of making that the point of your life. Uh, if you do that, you'll probably find whatever you want to find. You'll find a lot of self-justification, or you might actually just go crazy, endlessly searching for the true identity beneath this or that layer of psychological, uh, uh, emotional, you know, whatever's in your, in your head. Pardon me, I don't know how else to say this. My identity is way less important and way less interesting than I probably think it is. And the same is true for all of us here. Our identities are just not not as important and not as important uh, and interesting as we think it is. Elevating your inner self to the point that discovering it and expressing it and receiving validation for it is a moral duty, the locus of moral meaning in your life, is selfish, solipsistic, and self-obsessed. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ, the one man who would ever be justified in worshiping himself, didn't do so. He refrained from that self-worship. He emptied himself in his love for us and his love for the father his love for the father was so overwhelming that jesus allowed it to define himself and he oriented his actions according to that love not according to his identity we who follow jesus are called to follow his example the apostle paul says put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus, uh, put off the old self, even, he says elsewhere, put to death our old natures, uh, and redefine ourselves in the image of Jesus who emptied himself for the love of God and the service of mankind. This is not a call to lose ourselves or deny our particular identities. We, we look forward to the day when people quote from every tribe and language and people and nation worship before the throne of God, Revelation chapter 7. A time when we will enjoy perfect unity in diversity and we will enjoy that diversity but we are never called to make our tribe, our language, our our people, our nation central to our identities or the primary focus of our love Jesus merits that central place in our loyalty and our love. When we love something else in his place, that's called idolatry. In Christ, our identities are made new. Our citizenship in his kingdom supersedes our tribal loyalties. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Let me conclude where I started with superhero movies. The first and still the greatest superhero movie was and will always remain, of course, Star Wars. The myth I shared with you at the beginning is, I hope you recognize, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Star Wars, famously, is a modern retelling of the old hero myth dressed up in space opera garb. Star Wars is a superhero movie in which the heroes are space monks with laser swords who have special powers like telepathy, telekinesis, precognition, and more. There is a key difference between Star Wars and the Avengers. When Iron Man and Captain Marvel journey within, they find one particular identity, one particular set of powers. In that way, they are the perfect pop culture embodiment of the myth of identity. And I love them as much as ever. I'm going on Sunday to see the new one. We journey within, we find something unique, something particular, something specific that needs expression. The Jedi are not so. The Jedi are called to journey within, not in search of a unique identity, but in search of the force, the universal, the transcendent, the timeless, the eternal power that surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together. That is what I think makes Star Wars different. Turns Star Wars from just another fairy tale to a grand and timeless myth with appeal across generations and across cultures. That is why the Avengers inspire admiration, Star Wars inspires nearly religious fervor. In episode 3, as Chancellor Palpatine tempts Anakin to consider the dark side, Anakin pushes back, and he says this. The Sith rely on their passion for their strength. They think inward only about themselves. The Jedi are selfless. They care about others. Selfless. Selfless. Without a self, Jesus emptied himself. He was selfless. He did not make the discovery, expression, or validation of his identity central to his life or mission. Rather, it was his love for the Father, his service to humanity that called him forward, Yes, journey within. Undertake this hero's journey. Seek not yourself. Seek the transcendent. Seek the universal. Seek the face of God. For there is the power to serve, not yourself, but serve the mission of God and the good of mankind. Thank you.